So, good evening. This is the second to last time that I get to say good evening to you. And at this point, if I've done the math right, I think half of you have heard about 84 Dharma talks. (laughs) And the other half of you have heard about 42 Dharma talks. Either way, that's a lot of words about the Dharma. (laughs) A lot of fingers pointing at the moon, as Greg says. So some of you might be wondering what else could possibly be said. (laughs) And I've been wondering that too. (laughs) So I was pretty tempted just to sit in silence, but I have made a commitment to my friends and colleagues here that I would give the Dharma talk tonight. And because this is the last talk, I wanted to take some time just to reflect on what we've been doing here together over these weeks and months. I've heard from quite a few of you directly and seen for myself in our meetings some of the profound transformations that you've gone through. And I've heard similar reflections from the other teachers I also know from my own experience of being on retreat the kinds of challenges that we've all faced, as well as the rewards, the immense benefits that we've each received from being here. There are so many different dimensions to all of that, but if we just consider what has happened over these last weeks and months, it's really nothing short of miraculous. Now, miracles are not something that are generally talked about in this tradition. And even for myself, the word miracle is not one that I would commonly use. But for some reason, it's been coming up a lot in these last few days, bubbling up in my heart and mind. So tonight, I thought to begin just by considering some of these miracles that I've been identifying. The first miracle is that we've had the opportunity to access these teachings at all. For those of us brought up in the West, the Dharma is still relatively new here. It's not what most of us grew up with. So statistically speaking, the numbers of people who manage to make contact with these teachings, let alone put them into practice, is still quite small. Even back in the Buddha's day, the Buddha acknowledged how rare it was to be born into circumstances where the Dharma was available to be practiced. He used a striking analogy that some of you might know, the image of the turtle putting its head through a wooden ring or yoke. He said, suppose that this great earth were totally covered with water and a man were to toss a yoke with a single hole there. A wind from the east would push it west. A wind from the west would push it east. A wind from the north would push it south. A wind from the south would push it north. And suppose a blind sea turtle were there. It would come to the surface once every 100 years. Now, what do you think? Would that blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every 100 years stick his neck into the yoke with a single hole. That's quite an unusual image, but the gist 
you get the gist. The odds of that happening are pretty small. Just as the odds of us being able to connect with the Dharma and have the opportunity to practice it are pretty small. And in that analogy, I like that the sea turtle is blind. (laughs) Because for myself, it did feel like the early part of my life involved a lot of swimming around in circles and feeling totally clueless for a pretty long time before finally something happened, some kind of grace. And we can fast forward to tonight. Here we all are, sitting in this hall on almost the last day of a three-month insight meditation retreat. So you might take a moment just to reflect on how this happened in your own life. Can you remember the first time you came into contact with the Dharma? Was it a book or a talk or maybe a meditation group that someone invited you to? Who was the first teacher you heard speak about the Dharma? Can you remember? And if you can, who was that teacher's teacher? And who was their teacher? And who was their teacher? What I'm pointing to is that at some point all of these different lineages converge back to the Buddha himself. Somehow these teachings came from northern India 2,600 years ago all the way to IMS and Barry today. That's an immense journey over time and space. And all along the way, that journey was made possible through the heart qualities of generosity and gratitude. The Buddha offered his teachings and people appreciated them. They memorized what was taught and recited it to others. And they appreciated what they heard, memorized and recited it to others, and so on down through the centuries until eventually they were written down. And these powerful words continue to be passed from heart-mind to heart-mind. But, and they have to be put in practice. They have to be put into practice and actually lived for that momentum to continue and for the deepest levels of insight to be experienced. For those deep levels of insight, we need the support of some fairly specialized settings. So the second miracle that I've been contemplating is that this retreat center exists and that it's been offering these long retreats every year for over 40 years. So back in 1975, when Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield came back from practicing in Asia and they had the inspiration to try to set up a retreat center here in the U.S., All kinds of different causes and conditions had to fall into place to allow that to happen. And somehow through the power of their collective inspiration, those causes and conditions did come together. So now we have not only IMS, the retreat center, but the Forest Refuge and the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies too. And again, on one level, these centers are just collections of buildings, bricks and mortar, wood and concrete. 
but they are sustained by the heart qualities of generosity and gratitude that bring them to life and that have made them a place of refuge for tens of thousands of people over the last 40 years. And it might be easy for some of you to take for granted the existence of centers such as IMS, but as you know, I'm from the Southern Hemisphere, and on that side of the world, there isn't really an equivalent of IMS. And the opportunities to do retreats and study the Dharma are much more limited. So every time I come here, I do feel this renewed sense of appreciation for all the people who've helped to support these places in so many different ways. And in light of this, one person who's been in my heart and mind over the last couple of weeks is Sarah Doring. We mentioned in one of the morning reflections, I think a couple of weeks ago, that she had been a benefactor for IMS and that she recently died. And when I was first on staff here, I had the good fortune to spend a bit of time around Sarah. I'd heard that she'd played some kind of role in helping the Forest Refuge to be built, but I had no idea of the extent of her generosity until I read her obituary recently. And what stood out for me back then was her quiet dignity and obviously deep dedication to the Dharma. In every interaction that I had with her, I sensed an unusual combination of kindness, humility, and integrity. And these qualities are echoed in what Sharon Salzberg wrote for Sarah's obituary. Sharon says, Sarah exemplified an unusual combination of dignity, wisdom and warm-heartedness. She took a rare delight in simple pleasures, beautiful aesthetics, harmony between people, and more than anything, being of service. Sarah knew that large, magnanimous acts interspersed with immediate, direct moments of kindness, listening to someone, encouraging them, make up a life of compassion and she lived a life of compassion fully. So from her obituary, I learned that Sarah had been a great benefactor, not only to the retreat center and the forest refuge, but also the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, Cambridge Insight in Boston, and Spirit Rock in California. So every one of us sitting here tonight is a direct beneficiary of Sarah's dedication to the Dharma. And I personally would like to take a moment just to bow in gratitude to her immense generosity that has helped make this retreat possible. So we have the miracle of being able to access the Dharma and the miracle of the existence of this retreat center we also have the miracle that each one of us was able to get ourselves here for this retreat. And again, a whole pile of causes and conditions had to come together to make that possible. In addition to your own strong motivation, your own strong intention, I'm guessing that each of you was helped in different ways by different people in your life, perhaps partners, 
family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors. So again, you might just take a moment to reflect on all that's needed to happen for you to be able to do this retreat, all the generosity that you've received that's made it possible for you to be here. And it is a kind of privilege to have access to an experience like this. It's one that's not available for everybody. And I don't know about you, but I know many people in my wider circle who would love to do something like this, but for whatever reason, circumstances haven't yet made it possible. Perhaps you too know some people in your own lives that would like to do a retreat but can't. If you don't know anyone directly, you might think of different groups of people who currently don't have the conditions to allow them to practice in this way. So to name just a few examples, perhaps people with financial stress or health challenges, people with responsibilities for family members, people who are incarcerated, many different reasons why people may not be able to access a retreat like this. So we might share some of our good fortune with those people also. The fourth miracle that I've been contemplating is that having got ourselves here, We've been able to live together in community during this whole time. So today we were exploring some of the ways that we may be different. We all come from different backgrounds, different gender identities, social, cultural, racial, geographical backgrounds, health conditions, life histories, psychological temperaments. We all have our own individual needs. And the fact that we all managed to get along as well as we did is pretty impressive. It's not too many places where you could take nearly a hundred more or less random people and have them live together for six weeks or three months. And we know it hasn't always been easy. So over these weeks and months, we, the teachers, did get a few notes from yogis requesting that we, the teachers, ask people to be different in various ways. <laughs> Please tell the yogis to stop doing X or start doing more Y or stop being so Z. (laughs) And for the most part, we didn't pass those communications on. (laughs) And it seems that for the most part, in spite of us not requesting X or Y or Z of you, we still managed to get along pretty well. In fact, you might not even at this point recognize just how deep some of these connections are that you formed with each other until you leave on Tuesday and feel the sudden absence of your co-meditators. So I encourage you not to take this temporary sangha for granted. You all have shared this fairly unique experience together. So if you can, try to stay in contact 
we talk a lot about the downside of technology, but the upside is that we do have the possibility of online communications, video calls for people who are at distance. So we can use technology to our advantage and offer each other mutual support as we navigate the changing conditions of our practice from the specialized conditions here to whatever is out there. So the fifth miracle is that having got yourself here, having managed to live in community, you managed to stay here. <laughs> I'm guessing that for each one of you, there were times when you were pretty close to walking or maybe running out the door <laughs> and going home. Yes? Anybody not experience that at some point? <laughs> maybe just a few. Congratulations. So in the Zen tradition, <laughs> they recognize the so-called rolling up the mat stage and it can be intense but every one of you has managed to resist it and that's again no small thing so to perhaps get a felt sense of the journey that we have been on over these weeks and months see if you can remember all the way back to the first time that you walked into this hall at the start of your retreat Do you have some sense, some memory of how it felt back then? And then let your mind scroll through all the subsequent days, weeks, months, all the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the happiness, the sadness, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And I'm guessing that at times it may have felt like we were in one of those giant rock tumblers that they use to polish semi-precious stones. We put the rough rocks of our hearts and minds in a barrel full of coarse grit, that's all of you, and we churn the barrel for days, weeks, months, perhaps at some point years, until our sharp edges are smoothed out. The roughness is gradually polished away. And eventually we emerge to display our natural lustrous beauty, a beauty that was always there, but just needed to be brought out through this process of sitting and walking, seeing clearly and befriending ourselves more and more fully. So those are just five of the numerous miracles that have been revealing themselves to me as this retreat comes to an end. And you can probably name some miracles of your own, personal miracles that are unique to you. But as I was thinking about these five, it seemed to me that there's one common underlying quality that they all share, and that's the spirit of generosity. It's the invisible thread of generosity that started us on this path that helps us to continue along it. And as we get towards the end, it's what allows us to reciprocate, to offer back to the world with a heart-mind grown great. Our awareness imbued with metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Abundant, 
expansive, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And in the Mahayana tradition, this cultivation of generosity is a practice expanded into the bodhisattva ideal, the aspiration to achieve nibbana for the sake of all sentient beings. I think Brian spoke of this in one of his earlier Dharma talks. And in previous talks here, I've quoted Shantideva, the Tibetan master who wrote a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life in about 700 AD. Shantideva was a Buddhist monk at Nalanda Monastic University in India. And his treatise on the path to becoming a Bodhisattva is apparently read every day for inspiration by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And it may be possible that some of you are thinking that you're a long way from that kind of aspiration. Perhaps it sounds so lofty as to be uh, almost meaningless. But whether or not we frame it in terms of bodhicitta, this is the heart-mind that has that aspiration, I think most of us here do have some wish to live our lives more skillfully and to help make the world a better place. So I'd like to read you a passage by the American Tibetan Buddhist nun Pema Chodron because she names both the doubt and the yearning very clearly. She says, Raising the Bodhi heart means connecting with our longing for enlightenment, with the clear desire to alleviate the escalating suffering we see in the world today. Most people do not give much thought to enlightenment, but most of us do long for a better world situation and we long to be free of neurotic habits and mental anguish. This is the ideal state of mind for awakening bodhicitta, the aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. We know we want to be part of making things better and that we need to get more sane to do this effectively. It's the perfect place to start. If we can commit to pursuing this goal, we are on the same page as Shantideva. Like us, he had to work with a wild mind, overpowering emotions and entrenched habitual patterns. Like us, he was able to use his life, just as it was, to work intelligently with his reactivity. The yearning to do this is aspiration bodhicitta. Although we may not always be able to stop ourselves from bringing pain to others, our intention to sort out our confusion and be of service remains unwavering. So having spent the last six or 12 weeks trying to sort out our confusion, hopefully hopefully the intention to be of service has become stronger. And as this retreat ends very soon, most of us are going to be shifting our mode of practice away from being so meditation-focused and towards more engagement with the world. In that shift, the heart quality of generosity that we've been cultivating here will be a powerful resource. And in the Tibetan tradition, the first stage of awakening bodhicitta begins with the perfection of generosity. In the Theravada tradition too, 
Generosity is the first of the ten parami, the ten qualities that the Buddha-to-be is reported to have spent lifetime after lifetime developing as a support for his eventual attainment of awakening. So paying attention to generosity is not just a practice for beginners. When it's practiced fully, it leads all the way to complete freedom of heart and mind. And although we usually think of generosity as benefiting the recipient, in the Buddha's teachings, there's a lot of emphasis on the benefits that we ourselves receive. So I think of the English phrase, enlightened self-interest, in relation to this. For example, the Buddha's teachings to the layman Mahanama very clearly emphasize the rewards of practicing generosity. I think we may have mentioned this teaching before, but it's said that Mahanama went to the Buddha and asked him for teachings that were suitable for a lay person like himself. Apparently, the Buddha told him that he should, Mahanama should contemplate six things every day, and that if he did this regularly, the practice would lead him to Nibbana, liberation. So the six things that Mahanama was advised to contemplate every day were the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dharma, the good qualities of the Sangha, and then Mahanama's own generosity and Mahanama's own good qualities, and then the good qualities of the devas or angels. And I think Greg's been helping you with that last one. So what stood out for me on that list was the Buddha's instruction to Mahanama to practice recalling his own generosity and his own good qualities, his own virtues. So these are the actual words from the sutta in relation to generosity. One thing, Mahanama, when developed and pursued, leads solely to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding, Nibbāna. Which one thing? Recollection of generosity. You recollect your own generosity. At any time when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting virtue, their mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Their mind heads straight, based on generosity. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the Noble Ones gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy, connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. So you might have noticed in that passage one of those positive chain reactions that I spoke about in last week's talk, how contemplating one's own generosity leads naturally to joy, to rapture, to calm, 
to ease, to concentration, and that all these are skillful mental qualities that allow the deepest insights to arise. So the importance of cultivating this spirit of generosity is woven throughout the whole of the Buddha's path to freedom. And I'm using the phrase spirit of generosity to distinguish it from the more common term dana. Because in the Buddha's teachings, this distinction is made between dana, which is the act of giving or the thing being given, and the heart quality that motivates the action the heart quality is known as chaga. So chaga is the generosity, the spirit of generosity in the heart and mind. And it goes far beyond simply handing over cash donations or writing checks or filling out credit card donation forms. And in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, there are three distinct levels of generosity. There's the gift of material things, there's the gift of fearlessness, and there's the gift of dharma. And these are seen as increasingly refined levels of offering that progress naturally from one to the other. So we start with the gift of material things, which can include our time and our energy as well as money and objects. Because unless there's some capacity to open our hearts and minds, we're not going to be able to receive the teachings. And this cultivating the spirit of generosity powerfully supports many other skillful mental qualities. It lessens greed, for example, and strengthens our capacity for contentment. It helps to develop renunciation, sometimes known as non-addiction. In other words, not being dependent on material conditions for our happiness. And as in the teachings given to Mahanama, generosity gladdens the mind and leads to joy. So a beautiful example of the connection between the spirit of generosity and joy just magically appeared on the meal down aboard a few days ago. Maybe that's another miracle, actually. <laughs> there have been lots of inspiring meal dedications on the board over the last few weeks and months. But this one stood out for me. It said, To all the yogis, cooking for you has been a joy. Thank you for making IMS such a special place to work. Tara, Sabra, Bo, Evan, Laurie, Eric, and Linda, who you might know are the retreat center cooks. So what I appreciated about that dedication was the sense of reciprocity, the flow of generosity, of joy, as it named, from the cooks to the yogis and back to the cooks, and the acknowledgement that IMS is not an ordinary workplace because the conditions here allow this spirit of generosity to infuse what we do. Whether we're yogis or staff or teachers or volunteers, all of us are engaged in this dance of offering and receiving. And without it, this retreat wouldn't have happened. And none of us would have received the huge benefits that we've got from this time of practicing deeply together. 
So the second reason that I want to emphasize chaga, the spirit of generosity, instead of dana, the thing given, is that for those of us who are brought up in mainstream culture, capitalist culture, we have conditioning that puts much more emphasis on the material or the financial value of whatever it is that's being given. But in the Buddha's teachings, it's the intention, the heart quality behind the act of giving that determines its true worth. So the quality of heart, the depth and strength of the chaga, that's what determines whether a gift is valuable or not. So in this understanding, if a very wealthy person just casually writes a check for a million dollars, that would have less value than a poor person making a humble gift from a really sincere heart. And I had, when I was on staff here, uh, the good fortune to volunteer in a prison uh, to be running a weekly meditation group for about four years. And as an aside, that group is still going. I recently met with the current staff members who are keeping it going. Coincidentally, many of them are the cooks who... Um, offered that same meal dedication. So over the course of those four years of uh, visiting that group, I was inspired by the generosity of so many of the men who came to it. Some of them literally had nothing and they were officially classified as indigent, which meant they had no money at all. And yet almost every week they would share stories of creative ways that they'd found to be generous to each other and to us, the volunteers. So to give just one example, one of the men in the group had been doing some Tibetan practice and he noticed that me and my co-facilitators didn't wear malas, the prayer beads that many Tibetan practitioners uh, use to count uh, mantras and so on. So this man decided that he would make a mala for each of us. And he did it by picking up twigs from the yard, small pieces of wood, and filing them into bead shapes on the concrete. I'm not sure how he managed to make holes in them, but he managed to. And then he found some pieces of wire and he threaded them on the wire and formed them into bracelets. And when he brought them to the group and gave them to us, I felt really honored, knowing how much time and effort he'd put into that gift, that gesture of generosity. And for me, that was a very meaningful gift, even though the thing itself was made basically from discarded, relatively worthless things. And I really connected with this man's happiness in being able to offer something to each of us. So cultivating the spirit of generosity helps to open our hearts and minds so that we become more receptive to the rest of the Buddha's teachings. And then we start to understand the truth that acting from unskillful mind states leads very directly to suffering, to harm for ourselves and for others. And conversely, acting from skillful mind states leads to happiness and welfare for ourselves and for others. We understand more and more clearly the truth of our interconnectedness. And as a result, our attention to ethical conduct becomes more refined. And this is the gift of fearlessness that the teachings recognize as the second level of dana.
And the Buddha explicitly named keeping the five precepts as an act of profound generosity. I think Winnie may have read part of this sutta, but I'd like to share a piece of it again now because it highlights the reciprocal nature of this fearlessness. It says, there are these five gifts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, gifts that are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and are unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. Which five? There is a case where a disciple of the Noble Ones, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life. In doing so, one gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, one gains a share in limitless freedom. This is the first gift, the first great gift. And this is the reward of merit, of skillfulness, the nourishment of happiness, celestial, resulting in happiness, leading to heaven, to what is desirable, pleasurable and appealing, to welfare and to happiness. So the passage then continues with the other four precepts of not taking what is not given, not freely offered, sorry, refraining from using our sexual energy in harmful ways, refraining from false speech and refraining from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And you all are familiar with these precepts because we've been chanting them every week and you all have been doing your best to maintain them And it can be easy to take this for granted, but thinking of this commitment to sila as a gift that we offer to the world, as well as to ourselves, might help us to recognize its true value. I don't know about for you, but for me, coming from a Judeo-Christian heritage, at first I tended to think of the precepts as being like commandments. But when I started to understand them as an act of generosity, that we offer to others and as well as ourselves, it changed my relationship to them. And this is not a one-way gift, as the Sutta points out. It's one that we ourselves benefit from in terms of protecting ourselves from fear also. The fear of being found out or blamed or shamed for any harmful actions that we may have done. I'm pretty sure that all of us at some time in our lives have experienced the misery of acting in ways that weren't ethical and the consequences that we had to deal with afterwards. So this dana of fearlessness comes from keeping the precepts on increasingly refined levels so that others can sense our commitment to non-harming and feel at ease around us. And it can also manifest as a very deep equanimity, balance of mind, evenness of mind. And in the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying, the true gift of the teacher is their fearlessness. The true gift of the teacher is their fearlessness. 
And I think of this on various levels. One is the fearlessness of non-harming. But in my own experience with teachers in long-term practice, I've felt at times that kind of equanimity that manifests as fearlessness. I don't know if you've had this experience too, but there were times when I would be in one of the ups and downs of practice. I actually felt like a very deep trough and I would bring all kinds of crises and dramas to my teacher and part of me was assuming that they would join me in those dramas and crises. <laughs> but they never did. And what I, although at first I expected them to be concerned or maybe even alarmed on my behalf, in the beginning I was a little disappointed that they weren't. But over time I learned to appreciate that stability, that non-reactivity. Didn't matter what I brought to them, there was a sense that it was okay. They didn't even have to say that it was okay. I understood that fundamental okayness just from their presence, their being. And by modeling that kind of equanimous fearlessness for me, I was able to meet my own challenges in a new way. So as we continue developing the spirit of generosity, chaga, our understanding of the preciousness of these teachings deepens. And then there's often a natural desire to want to share them in whatever ways we can. And in the Buddha's teachings, this is seen as the highest form of dana. But this doesn't mean that we're all supposed to go out and become dharma teachers. <laughs> there are numerous ways that we can share the dharma with others that don't involve actual teaching. And it's when we finish a period of intensive retreat like this, there often is a natural enthusiasm, a sense of feeling inspired, maybe even an urge to share our experience with anyone who will listen, and sometimes even if they won't listen. <laughs> <laughs> and sadly, I know from my own experience that it's possible to lose friends and alienate family members when we speak too much from this place of post-retreat enthusiasm or exuberance. <laughs> so it's generally best to err on the side of caution when trying to share anything about the Dharma after retreat. And in fact, the Buddha discouraged people from proselytizing. Proselytizing is a fancy word that means trying to convert someone from one belief to another or arguing that our position is the only right one. So in most Buddhist traditions, people are not supposed to speak about the Dharma unless they're asked. And in some schools, you have to be asked three times. So keep that in mind. I wish I'd known that after my first three-month retreat. Would have saved me a lot of trouble. Fortunately, the story has a happy ending because my friends are very forgiving and eventually we did get back on track. But there was a question in the bowl the other day about how to relate to friends and family who might not be so interested in Dharma. And I think it was Jack Cornfield who shared something one of his students said after a visit home. Apparently she said something like, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist and love it when I'm a Buddha. My parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist and love me when I'm a Buddha. We can probably acknowledge the truth of that, 
even though it might be very challenging to actually put into practice. So the main suggestion I'm offering is to try to have a restraint about how much we share and to make sure that the person we're speaking is genuinely interested. And if they're not, we might need to cultivate the generosity to allow that, to respect it, alongside the paramis of patience and determination and equanimity so that we don't push our enthusiasm on others. And when we can refrain or restrain ourselves in that way, often the results turn out much better than we could have anticipated, perhaps not in the time frame we would have liked, but again, it can be a patience practice. So to give another small example from my own life, back in 2005 when I first came on staff here, My parents back in New Zealand were not at all appreciative of me doing that. They really didn't know anything about Buddhism and they didn't know much about the US either, other than what they'd seen on TV. So my decision to come here was really pretty hard for them to understand. And a couple of years after I started here, they happened to be going back to the UK to celebrate my father's 70th birthday and their flight was going via the US. So I invited them to stop over at IMS on the way and I would pay for their the US part of their visit. They were not at all enthusiastic about this idea, <laughs> but eventually they agreed. And I, when I think back on it, I was secretly hoping that perhaps they would meet Joseph or one of the other teachers and they would receive the exact pearl of Dharma that would open their hearts and minds and help them understand the brilliance of the Buddha's teachings. But on the night that they arrived, it happened to be a farewell dinner for a long-term staff person. And so all the staff and all of my friends and Joseph were in the staff dining room attending this dinner. And... um, My parents had been invited to the dinner and again, they weren't particularly enthusiastic about the idea, but I think they understood that that was the only way they were going to get any food that night. (laughs) (laughs) So they reluctantly agreed to come along and we arrived a bit late after the meal had started and the staff dining was absolutely packed. So we were standing at the back of the room and my father wasn't in great health. And on the far side of the room, Joseph was doing something or other and he um, noticed me and my parents arrive and then he disappeared. And he came back in the other door with a chair for my father. And he just said hello, gave them the chair and that was it. But just that action made an impression. (laughs) And it's so funny, after the dinner was over, my mother said, that was a very nice fellow who brought that chair for your father. Was he one of the cooks? (laughs) So they didn't get the kind of Dharma transmission from Joseph that I've been anticipating, but they did get a transmission and that interaction really helped them feel at ease in that room of people they didn't know, all those Buddhists with a capital B. And I saw them relax and they started to talk to the people next to them. And by the end of the evening, they were having a great time. 
And that led in the longer term to a shift in our relationship and a shift in their appreciation of what I was doing. So when we're able to embody the Dharma like this, everything that we do can become an offering to all living beings. And in its highest expression, the heart-mind of generosity turns into the bodhisattva ideal, the wish to postpone one's own awakening so that one may help others out of their suffering. So I'd like to come back now to Shantideva, the Indian scholar I referred to earlier, and his book, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The whole book is quite long, so I'm just going to read a few lines to close, lines that express how generosity can culminate in this deep wish for the welfare of all beings. May I become at all times both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. For as long as space endures, and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. May the quality of chaga generosity of heart and mind that we've been developing so powerfully on this retreat may it combine with all the other skillful qualities that we've been cultivating here and become a contribution to the welfare, the happiness and the liberation of all beings everywhere. May we be free. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.